The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Looks like there are a few new folks tonight. Welcome to Common Ground. Uh, my name is Mark Nunberg, and I'm the guiding teacher here. Usually once a month, I share a little bit about this teaching on dana. That's a Pali word, usually translated as generosity. And it's part of this general practice we do, uh, not just at Kamagam, but we try to do all life long. So I want to say a few words about that and then go back and talk about this uh, next chapter in Ajahn Chah's book. So the practice of dana is a way, basically an integration of all these teachings that we learn over the years coming out of the Buddhist teachings. And like I suggested in the guide, it said we're trying, we're interested in being free. And actually that's just nice to hold front and center. The whole purpose of practice and study is to realize freedom, more freedom than we're currently realizing in our lives. And one of the ways we realize non-freedom is just what a struggle it is to have a body, to earn a living, to negotiate our relationships with our partners and our friends and society generally, our bosses, our colleagues. It's not easy. And part of what makes it difficult is the normal mode, the accepted mode, is to, you know, be strategic. So when we interact, even somebody casually introducing yourself to somebody at common ground before or after a program, even in something that innocent, there's a kind of strategicness, like getting, how can I get this person to see the best side, or to, how can I paint a nice picture of myself for that person, so they'll see me in this way. So we're always playing with power, and that's just kind of part of our beastly nature. It's not really different for all living beasts, this negotiating of territory, of status. It's always going on for social beings, for human beings. You call this the dog-eat-dog world, or just being a human beast. But it's just part of the territory of this mind and body. And it's stressful, because we are manipulating, being strategic, dealing with other people, people's manipulation and being strategic. And so the question is, is there, is there a way to go beyond that? Is that like it, like getting competent at being manipulative and strategic? Is that as best as we can do? And so this word dana represents another way or an aspiration. So we're aspiring to live. You could translate dana as a free giving and a free receiving. Now, I know this sounds really naive. Oh, so you're asking me to freely give and freely receive as if that's going to put food on the table or that's going to help me find a partner that will I can share my life with or whatever, you know, these sort of normal issues in our lives. But what I'm asking, I guess, and maybe just the Buddha is suggesting, is that we explore this practice of free giving and receiving just in little corners of our life initially, until we have more confidence or faith in it. 
So for example, at Common Ground, this is a good place to practice free giving and free receiving. As an organization, you probably noticed we don't charge for anything, we don't have suggested donations, and that was quite intentional because we thought, well, well, let's practice free giving and free receiving and see how it works. So everything here is freely giving, given, no strings attached, and all the people involved in the organization, we practice giving everything away in a way that makes us happy. So everybody who's done anything to make this building, you know, and it was a greasy, greasy 1950s diner when we bought it in 2006. It took us a couple years to renovate it, all the work to maintain it, you know, pay for it, all that. This is an act of joy. And mostly I think it's really true. I'm not just sort of saying that. Because we wanted, you know, all of us who made this happen, and there's so many, literally thousands of people made this place happen, it was just a free gift to everyone who's coming here and taking part in the programs. And so we practice giving away the teachings, the building, the whatever, as a free gift, no strings attached. And then when we come and do programs here, our job first and foremost is, re is to receive the gift freely, no strings attached. Which means we have to let it in. You're like, oh, that's nice. It's nice that this program, like tonight, is freely given. No strings attached. It's a gift from everybody from the Buddha on down that's made this happen, these teachings, this place available. My job is to really take it in. Like, okay, this is a gift. It's not easy to take a gift freely. It's much easier to have a business relationship. Like, okay, I'll take it in, but I'll take care of my obligation, my guilt, by you know putting some money in the bowl or whatever, however we might justify that relationship. But we want to take it in and feel good as a free gift. And then if we respond, if we feel inclined to respond in any way, that's because it feels good to respond. Not because we have to. Because if we feel we have to respond, we haven't received it as a free gift. So whenever you give money to Common Ground, or contribute your time, or your good wishes, or your sincere practice, or in any way you give back in your life, See if it can be a free gift. You're giving in order to be happy. It makes you happy to give. If you give too much, you won't feel happy. If you don't ever give in life, you won't feel good. So then we're exploring, like, how can I give to maximize happiness? It, it sounds selfish, but it's all about giving. So it's a wrong understanding to think that generosity is like a heavy trip. You know, we have to be generous because if we're not, Santa Claus won't shine his light on us or something like that. But instead, being kind, being patient, letting people in on the highway, giving money to organizations that we love and care about, they, we do it because it makes us happy. And so we won't know that unless we're paying attention. Like, what does it feel like to give and to recall it? You know, when we recall acts of generosity, if, they're, if they've been balanced, wise acts of generosity, it should make us happy. This is a good thing to know because when we're dying or when things are really difficult and we need to balance the mind, we can bring to mind all of the beautiful acts of generosity and it will balance our mind. All of that 
those good memories of moments of generosity will really help when life is difficult. So you want to practice now noticing that when you give back, not just at Kamagam, but anywhere, notice what that feels like. And if it doesn't feel good, investigate. Like, why isn't this feeling good? Is it because I'm in this manipulative world? Like, I, on the surface, it's an act of generosity, but really, I want someone to notice, or I want something back from this act, so then it's not a free gift. It's strategic. I'll give in order to get rid of this guilt. So this too is a real practice. It's really hard to receive freely, like just to let it in. This is a free gift. Use your imagination. All the people who made this place happen, all the people who've shared their fruits of their practice generation by generation, and now it's being shared with me. All of this is a free gift. I get to receive it. No strings attached. Really let that in. And same, when you give, Really reflect on what that feels like. So the idea in living a life of free giving and receiving is that we're learning to be happy coming out of how we're living, receiving freely and giving freely. So you could start with something simple like your relationship to common ground or other places in your life where it may be easy for you to reflect on free giving and receiving. But then when you get have more confidence... Bring it into more challenging places of your life. Like, how can you think about your job? Let's say you have a paid job. How can you imagine, reimagine that in terms of free receiving, freely giving? The paycheck arrives on a Friday, and you take it as a free gift. How wonderful that they pay me. This money shows up. What a great thing for that to happen. And then when we show up on Monday morning, it's like, I'm here. I'm here to give my life away. I'm here to really put my heart into the activity of this job as a free gift for the betterment of all. And, you know, if you really can't do that in the job you have, you know, either work on your imagination or find a different job. I mean, there may be jobs where you really can't do that. But I think most jobs you could probably transform into this act of forgiving. But your pay job will be at the more challenging end of this work. So just start with certain relationships, like your relationship to Common Ground, other institutions, maybe a few relationships, like friendships where it really has more of the flavor of free giving and receiving, a balance, there's a balance to the relationship, and then into the more complicated, difficult things. But in terms of just Common Ground and its surviving as an organization, if you have questions, you can always check in with me or our bookkeeper, Gail Iverson, works on Tuesday. She's also one of the teachers here at the center. And you can check in, give a call on Tuesday if you want to talk with her. Or Often the program host is around and you can ask uh, them uh, any questions that you have. There is a sheet next to the donation bowl that explains a little bit more if you have questions. So that's my monthly talk on this, and it's sometimes nice to have some of the regular experienced community members share their reflections on Donna. So if ever, if you've been around for a couple of years and you want to do next month's talk or some talk down the road, just let me know, and I'll line you up for one of the last Sundays of the month to give the talk on Donna. So I want to go back to Ajahn Chah's book. Um, We've been reviewing our practice in September, so it's been over a month since we've looked at this. We're getting close to the end.
of this wonderful book. It's called Food for the Heart by this great Thai Buddhist monk meditation teacher, Ajahn Cha. Ajahn just means teacher. So Cha is his name, C-H-A-H. There's a lot of his material online you can find if you want. And this is, of course, not a book he wrote, but just the transcriptions of little and big talks he gave to the monks and nuns and lay people that came to visit him in northeast Thailand, where he lived and practiced for many years. And this chapter is called Sweet uh, Still Flowing Water. And he liked to use this simile a lot to sort of blow the minds of his students. He would say something like, you know still water, don't you? And everybody would go, yeah, I've seen still water. And then he'd say, you know flowing water, don't you? And everybody would say, yeah, I know what flowing water is. And then he would say, but have you ever seen still flowing water? And everybody would go, what do you mean? <laughs> because we don't know how to hold that in our mind, or it isn't easy to hold that image, have a sense of what that would be. But he uses that still flowing water as a simile for this body and mind, this what this is, what this experience of body-mind is. There is something here and now, right now, not theoretically, metaphysically, but practically, pragmatically, right here and now, there is something that is profoundly still, unmovable, unshakable, and, this is more obvious, there's something here that's moving. Sound is moving, sight is moving, smell and taste comes and goes, touch, sensation is not a static thing, it's quite alive with change, with movement, and thought moves, comes and goes, right? So, mostly what we take this to be, the world to be, is what Ajahn Chah would call movement, you know, the flowing of the water. So what we don't necessarily understand as well is, what is it that's not moving? Ajahn Sumedha, one of Ajahn Chah's best-known students, he was a Westerner from Seattle originally, and uh, was in the Navy, and eventually got a master's in East Asian Studies from UC Berkeley back in the early 60s, and went to Asia to teach, and was really interested in Buddhism, became a monk in the mid-60s, and and over the years became a very well-known teacher in this tradition of Buddhism, this lineage of Buddhism. And Ajahn Chah is maybe one of his most famous students. And Ajahn Sumedho just has recently retired. He's in his maybe almost 80 now. Um, but anyway, once when he was studying with Ajahn Chah, he went to see some of the other elder senior monks, and one he met, and this is just at the time where Ajahn Sumedha was learning Thai, the language, so he didn't understand it too well. So this senior, well-known teacher, not Ajahn Chah, but another one, gave him this very simple instruction. He said, this is all that's important, pointing to his heart. You need to know the heart and the activity of the heart. And you need to know the difference between the heart and the activity of the heart. That's it. It's all you need to know, the heart and the activity of the heart. If you understand the distinction, you've understood everything that needs to be known. And this goes back to what Ajahn Chah was saying about still flowing water. The stillness is the heart. 
the essence of the heart, the nature of the mind itself. Like space, there's no, the space of the room, the space of here and now, that's not moving. Anything that's moving is not the space, it's something happening in the space. You know, we're all, our bodies are all moving. Even if you think you're still, you're moving. Everything's moving. Even on the most subtle level, you know, the atoms, quarks, you know, however much you divide it, everything is vibrating and moving. And when we sit, the more we sit, the more we realize how alive the body is with movement. That it is fundamentally characterized by movement. And the same is with the, true with the visual field. Like, casually we may say the visual field is fixed. You know, oh yeah, I'm seeing this. But actually, when we soften the gaze and we tune into visual, the visual experience, the seeing experience, it's just a dance of visual information, I guess you could say. There's nothing static or fixed about seeing at all. And the same is true with hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking. So, when that teacher told Ajahn Sumedho that there's just the heart and the activity of the heart, he meant that the activity of the heart are these five physical senses, these five ways we're sensitive to the world and thought, and the constant movement of those five things, and the space of the heart, or the space of the mind that knows that activity. And this is really the essence of our practice. We have to understand the mind. The freedom really comes from understanding the heart and the activity of the heart, the stillness and the flowing. And it's the misunderstanding. I mean, the basic problem as the Buddha understood it for human beings, the reason that we suffer, he would say, is because we're misperceiving. We're not understanding the heart and the activity of the heart. Basically, he would say, we're taking the activity of the of the heart personally, the activity of our thinking mind, the activity of seeing, the activity of hearing, the activity of touching. We take those sense experiences, that movement, personally. We're personally invested, identified, challenged, reactive to all movement. And in, in kind of getting drawn into the movement of life, the movement of sense experience, we forget something that is here and now, and the mind gets out of balance. Like in Buddhist terms, we'd say we forget emptiness, because the space is fundamentally empty. Knowing the, the mind that knows, which is right here and now, right? We know there is a mind that knows, because I see Sarah over there, you know, and I, I hear my voice, and I'm comprehending what I'm saying. So all of this is being known. So I know there's knowing because things are being known. What's being known? The activity of the present moment is being known. This movement of thought and sight and sound, all of this is being known. So I know, I can intuit that there is knowing. But can knowing itself be known? No. Only activities of sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, and thought can be known. In the same way that we can't grasp 
the space of the room. But it's clear, right? We, we clearly, we can't be here if there isn't space. This activity of what we call life depends on emptiness, the empty space for this life to unfold, or the empty space of the mind that knows what's arising, what the mind, the body is sensitive to, the thoughts and sounds and sights. So in practice, we're, you know, when we sit down, like in our formal meditation practice, we're practicing no longer misperceiving, no longer being confused by still flowing water. So we're settling right in the middle because the still flowing water, the mind and the activity of the mind, the heart and the activity of the heart, it has to be here and now. So we don't need actually to direct our attention somewhere. Now I know we do that sometimes in meditation. We direct the attention to the breath or we direct the attention to the body. But remember, when we're practicing meditation, we're not trying to leave the present moment. We're not escaping the present moment, ultimately. We're coming into the present moment. We're landing, opening to the present moment. So when you do direct your attention to the breath, for example, as a concentration object, Remember that you're just doing it to help stabilize the mind in the present moment. That it really is important to be steady or stable, the mind to be steady or stable. So instead of, like I said in the guided set, just opening to all the ways that the mind is sensitive, the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, the thinking, we can just Simplify it, make it easy by just noticing the breath coming in and noticing the breath going out. But knowing the breath coming in and knowing the breath going out or knowing the experience of the body sitting, there's still these two things. There's the movement of the breath and the mind that knows. There's the sensations of breathing in or the sensations of breathing out and the mind that knows it. There's always those two things. So this this uh, reality of still flowing water, you can't escape it. It's never, this moment is never anything but that still flowing water. Even in the most complicated moment of your life, like you're in an intense argument with your partner, or you're trying to decide whether you should do go this way or that way in your life, But in that moment, there is the activity of thinking and the mind, the empty mind of knowing. When I say empty, it's empty because if it's, if there's something there, then that something there is something being known. Does that make sense? So knowing itself is like space. I mean, it's hard to use words. Because generally our words, our language is really uh, designed to identify activity. Like I can give you a hundred words about touch. There's hard and there's soft, or there's smooth and there's rough, silky, you know, sandy, 
there's sweet and sour. I mean, we have so many words that describe hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, qualities of emotion. But it's we don't have too many words that describe or explain or point to the space of knowing or the field of awareness. But yet, it's there. It's like they say, it's like a fish not being aware of water. It doesn't mean there isn't water, but it doesn't occur to the fish that there's water. But there's still water. So it doesn't occur to the mind this empty space of knowing. But that doesn't mean that there isn't. Like the Buddha said once, the mind, the heart, is luminous, it's radiant and pure. But that this radiance, this luminosity, this knowing and purity is obscured by visiting defilements, by the attachment of, you know, the greediness and aversion to the different objects that are coming and going, to the activity. We're always wrapped up in the different things that are coming and going, literally obsessed. So let me read a little bit from Ajahn Chah's chapter here. Still flowing water. It's chapter 35 in the book, Food for the Heart. He says, to develop samadhi. So remember, samadhi is the steadiness of the mind or heart. To develop samadhi, you don't have to go bottling the mind up. Some people try to get peaceful by sitting quietly and having nothing disturb them at all. But that's just like being dead, right? Because it seems that way, like the problem is all of this stuff happening, if I could just get away from it all. So it's a nihilistic feeling, like, get me out of here. When we do that, we drink, crawl under the covers, we try to zone out by watching TV just to get some space, some distance from what feels oppressive. And it's true also in our meditation, like we really, you'll see people, they've got knitted brows and they're really focusing on something, their mantra, their breath, or something or other, in order to not feel, in order to not see. They're wanting to escape. And I'm not saying it's all bad, but it's limited. It's definitely a limited practice. But that, But that's just like being dead. The practice of samadhi is for developing wisdom and understanding. And he goes on, Samadhi is the firm mind, the one-pointed mind. And then he asks the question, on which point is it fixed? So in a wholesome sense, when we're collecting, gathering, studying the mind, what are we studying the mind on? You know, casually you might say, well, I'm studying my attention on the breath. Or if you were a little bit you know, studied a little bit more and you knew the right answer, you'd say, I'm steadying my attention here in the present moment. I'm grounding, settling in the present moment. But even more accurately, more importantly, the point on which we're studying the mind is the point of balance. It's the place where the mind, where the stillness and the flowing don't have a problem with each other. So there's flowing, but the flowing isn't disturbing the stillness. And the stillness isn't 
in any way trying to repress or deny the flowing. Right? And see, this is normally what we're doing. We're normally favoring one or the other. When we've been pushed around a lot by life because of the movement, you know, strong, painful emotions are moving, then we want to beat the movement of emotion down with stillness. You know, like, we want to tranquilize the movement of emotion. I don't care anymore. Or we drink. Or we, we do something to repress and suppress the movement of emotion. Or any, whatever it is that's been oppressive. And then with that, when we feel dead, because we've been trying to repress the movement of life, the activity of life, then we seek some movement. We want some, you know, we say, I want some joy, I want some excitement, I want life, I want to live. So we, we get attached, we give ourselves, we get identified, we go looking for the movement of life that's going to make us feel alive again. And we reject the stillness because we misunderstand it. We see stillness as death, and now we're seeing movement as life. But then when movement pushes around us around so much that we hurt, we see movement as a threat, right? We see movement as death in a way, like it's going to kill me. i got to get out of here. And we think of stillness as like, oh, safety. So we swing to these two extremes. But the real place of samadhi, of steadiness, is arises with the wisdom that understands that we have to integrate these two. This is our practice. And this is why we have this great image. You know, like in Buddhist traditions, you have statues like this one behind me. You know, and the idea is this sense of integrity of a relaxed human being sitting right in the middle of lived experience. So there's a sense of integrity of wakefulness, this empty knowing, but not retreated right in the middle, undefended, clearly awake. And so this is what we practice when we sit. Let me just finish this uh, paragraph. Samadhi is the firm mind, the one-pointed mind. On which point is it fixed? It's fixed on the point of balance. That's the point. But people practice meditation by trying to silence their minds. They say, I try to sit in meditation, but my mind won't be still for a minute. One instant it flies off one place, the next instant it flies off somewhere else. How can I make it stop? You don't have to make it stop. That's not the point. We really need to hear that. We don't need to make it stop. You don't need to make it stop. That's not the point. Where there is movement is where understanding can arise. Where there is movement is where understanding can arise. What is it that can see the movement of the mind, the movement of life generally? Stillness. It's only the still, empty knowing that can see the way things are. For those who were here last week, I talked about the traditional Buddhist refuge of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Right? It's Buddha. Buddha means to be awake. Buddha is this empty knowing. This is not something you have to create. It's not something you have to even develop. There is already this empty knowing. Look right now. You can't grasp it 
But notice right now, is there anybody here knowing the sound of my voice? You don't have to do anything. You can't stop yourself from hearing the sound of the voice. Knowing is already here. The space of knowing is already here. There's the movement, you know, the pitch of my voice, the punctuation, the quality, all that. That's the activity. And then there's the thinking mind that's digesting, comprehending the words that I'm saying. That's also activity. But the knowing itself, the space in which the mind understands or knows or hears, sees, touches, thinks, smells, and tastes, that's here. It's empty of somebody doing it. It's natural, we say. It's nature. How can I make it stop? You don't have to make it stop. That's not the point. Where there is movement is where understanding can arise. People complain. It runs off and I pull it back again. Then it goes off again and I pull it back once more. So they just sit there pulling back pulling back and forth like this. They think their minds are running all over the place, but actually it only seems like the mind is running around. What's actually running around? This activity of nature is what's running around. That's what thinking does. Thinking moves. That's what sound does. Sound moves. Sight moves. Sensations move. Life moves, the world moves. There are these two things. There is this movement. That's not a mistake. And thankfully, we don't have to control it. So much suffering masquerades as spiritual practice. But it's really a kind of spiritual repression or repression that we think of as a spiritual practice. Like, my wife is a choreographer former dancer, and teaches at McAllister, and one of the classes she teaches is on um, ballet. Well, it's the cultures of dance, where they cover ballet and all the other many, many forms of dance over through history. And talks about, you know, some of the different uh, ideas behind these different forms. You know, ballet has this real sense of transcendence, really not really wanting to be grounded in reality, like not wanting dancers with hips for example. And, and this whole idea of elevation, you know, like somehow um, being ethereal and otherworldly, as if having a body, human body, or a life. And so there's a lot in spiritual, artistic forms about transcendence. Like, God, if I could, only didn't have to be a human being, if I just didn't have to earn a living if I just didn't have to get along with my partner, you know, if we could just have sex or just share the budget, it would be so much better. But to actually have a relationship is complicated. All these things uh, seem to be problematic, you know. I don't mind being alive if I just didn't have to have a body, you know, that had to be fed or had to poop or had to, you know, didn't have to age. It would be so much easier. So there's this whole idea of transcendence, and that's what we imagine, you know. Whatever your particular version of being, you know, in the perfect place might be, where we've transcended what we imagine our problems are. 
But the real transcendence comes at this place of balance, where we let the movement of our life, all the joys and disappointments, all the movement of emotion, all the sounds and sights and smells and tastes and touches, when we let all this movement be movement, be nature, and we let the empty knowing be the empty knowing. And there's something that's profound that arises when we just let things be this way. There's movement, and then there's the heart that knows. That the kind of resultant experience is there isn't a problem. It only seems to be a problem when we have a preference for one or the other. You know, escaping movement. We think movement is dangerous and we need to escape it. Then life is rough. Or when we seek out activity, we want some pleasant, wonderful experience. In this chapter, Ajahn Chah has this great little story about, you know, buying yourself a, a great little thing, like a, he says, a pen. You know, and you just, you've saved up, you get the pen, you've always wanted a nice pen, you have it, you put it in your pocket, you go to the monastery, as he says in the story, and you're washing up for the meal, and you decide, you know, it's going to fall in, so you put the pen in your back pocket, you wash up. A little later that day, you check, there's no pen. And you're freaked out because you spent a lot of money in that pen. You were so attached, so much liking having that beautiful pen. It's part of your identity to be able to pull out that pen. And now it's gone. And you can imagine, you know, we've all had this experience in our own way of fretting and worrying and maybe blaming ourselves or blaming somebody else, hating ourselves for having lost the pen. And then even before we touch it, we remember, oh yeah, put the pen in my back pocket. So what a moment ago felt like this huge problem, all of a sudden, not only is there not a problem, but the mind realizes there never was a problem. And this is the same thing when the mind is out of balance, not in this place of still flowing water. There's movement and there's emptiness. There's the activity of life and there's the mind or the heart that knows. The flavor of that realization is no problem. So whenever we have a problem with life, any kind of problem with life, whatever it might be, something mundane like my knee hurts, I'm a little restless, I'm tired, I want to go home, or whatever, you know, I'm not looking forward to Monday, all, all that I have to do, I don't know what to do with the situation in my life. Whenever we have a problem and the anxiety or tightness that goes with that problem, then instead of feeling or thinking that the resolution will come from fixing the problem, you can experiment that maybe the resolution can come from correcting the fundamental misperception right here and now. That I'm not understanding, the mind is not understanding these two things. The activity of the moment, and the empty knowing of the moment, the space of the moment, the heart and the activity of the heart. So we contemplate, like in this moment. Like I said, it's always true. This, what the Buddha and Ajahn Chah are pointing to, is always true. So right now, this moment, the way it actually is, right here now, and this is not hidden in any way. This truth is not hidden in any way. So it's right here, directly 
perceptible right here and now, there is movement. And this movement we call nature. Right? There's the movement of sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and thought. And right here and now is the space of the heart. Or you could say the heart with a capital H or the empty heart. The space of the room. The space of when, in which all this is being known. This can be intuitive. Now the question is, first we have to learn to intuit this stillness in the midst, in the midst of all this activity. We have to have enough sense of respect, like initially for the teachings of the Buddha, that we look until we have direct experience, direct intuition. Then we have to cultivate a trust of that direct experience or direct intuition until the mind comes into balance and it understands both of these things, not just the activity of the moment, but the empty space of the moment. And the thing is, the more the mind intuits the empty space, the more the mind understands that the activity of the moment is not personal. To the degree we're not intuiting the empty space of here and now, then the movement of here and now seems very personal, which leads us to want to grasp what we like and push away what we don't like. So the war, the struggle we have with the present moment arises because we misunderstand it. It's like thinking the pen is gone. And we're in this imbalanced, uneasy place in life because we feel very clearly that something's missing. I need to be home in bed before I can be happy. I need to get rid of Monday before I can be happy. I need to figure out what I'm going to do on Monday before I can be happy. I need to, you know, one thing after another. So we're always out of balance. But the more that we know how to take refuge in the empty space of here and now, the more that we can leave, let the activity of the present moment be what it is. The activity of the personality, the activity of hearing and seeing and touching and smelling and thinking, it's just allowed to be nature. Nature is allowed to live, to move. A little later in this chapter, Ajahn Chah writes, <clears throat> well first, you know, he another image he uses, kind of more maybe descriptive image than the pen, is like a monkey. In, you know, at the monasteries, they have monkeys there. And you can always be upset because the monkeys are always messing around. You know, they grab things. And as long as you feel like the monkey shouldn't be doing what they're doing, you have a problem. But when you realize that monkeys are just doing what monkeys do, this personality is just doing what this personality does, your personality is just doing what your personality does, the weather is just doing what the weather does. Society just is doing what society does. Politicians do what politicians do. When you realize this whole dance is just that. It's this interdependent dance. Doing what it does. Doing what it is lawfully designed to do. Then we can let it be. So he says like, Understanding that monkeys are just being monkeys. So he says near the end of the chapter, Train the mind until it's pure. 
how pure should you make it? If it's really pure, he's really talking about the purity of understanding. If it's really pure, the mind should be above both good and evil. Above even purity, it's finished. A little uh, Another place in this chapter, he says that um, when people are attached to good and bad, see, I think I wrote it down here, get it exactly right. The practice of clinging to goodness and rejecting badness is the Dhamma, the teachings, for children. The practice of clinging to goodness and reacting to bad, or rejecting badness is the Dhamma, the teachings of children. It is like a toy. But if we grab onto goodness, if you grab onto goodness, badness will follow. So, he's saying that we have to go beyond this obsession with good and bad. Because that's what we do when we're unaware of the space of the heart. We take the activity personally and we keep turning the activity of the present moment into good and bad what we like and what we don't like. And that justifies what? When we see the world, whether it's the world of our thoughts about things or the external world, when we see the world in terms of good and bad, it justifies struggling and hatred and war, basically. We feel justified in war. We feel justified in being a victim, being helpless. All these unproductive habits. Only when you can make your mind beyond both happiness and suffering will you find true peace. That's the true peace. This is the subject most people never study. They never really see this one. Don't think that training the mind is simply sitting quietly. Some people complain, I can't meditate. I'm too restless. Whenever I sit down, I think of this and that. I can't do it. I've got too much bad karma. I should use up my bad karma first and then come back and try meditating. And he says, sure, just try it. Try using up your bad karma. The so-called hindrances are things we must study. Whenever we sit, the mind immediately goes running off. We follow it. We try to bring it back and observe it once more. Then it goes off again. This is what you're supposed to be studying. Most people refuse to learn their lessons from nature like a naughty schoolboy who refuses to do his homework. They don't want to see the mind changing. But then how are you going to develop wisdom? We have to live with change like this. When we know that the mind is just this way, constantly changing, when we know that this is its nature, we will understand it. And then he doesn't say this, but he might as well have said, and then we let go. So the reason we have to initially intuit this empty space of knowing is that that's the heart that lets the activity of the mind alone. Otherwise, when we're meditating, we're constantly trying to stop the activity of the mind. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's like a neurotic parent, you know, and they make neurotic kids. Don't do that. Don't do that. But that's how we are in our meditation. Don't do that. Don't do that. And the mind just gets neurotic. Instead, we're learning to just let the mind do whatever it's going to do, but instead taking refuge in the one who knows. Okay, the mind is doing this now. Now the mind's doing this. Now the mind's sluggish. Now the mind is restless. Now the mind is worrying. Now the mind thinks it's the best meditator in the globe. 
Now the mind thinks it's the worst meditator in the room. Now this, now this. So we're observing the activity, and eventually it begins to dawn on the mind that this activity is not personal. But you can't have that insight that the activity of the mind, the thinking mind, let's say, you will never have that insight that it's impersonal if you haven't learned to take refuge in the knowing. As long as you're identified with the activity, it will always seem personal. That will be the appearance. And then someone, you'll read, you know, one of the teachings of the Buddha where this says, well, you know, it's just thinking, it's not personal. And you're going to go, what do you mean thinking's not personal? Who do you think is thinking if it's not me? You know, of course it's personal. My thoughts are personal. They're my thoughts. They're not your thoughts. It just seems so obvious that thinking is personal. But it's simply because the mind, we haven't made this initial insight, had this initial insight that there's the activity of the present moment, clearly, and there's the space in which this activity is happening. And the mind can learn to intuit this space, trust it, take refuge in it more and more until the activity here and now, the activity of the present moment, is starting to seem very impersonal, ownerless, as Ajahn Chah says. No center to it. Ah, a natural conditional unfolding. And that's where we begin to experience freedom. This is the freedom we've been looking for. So I'll leave it here. We have some time. Maybe some of you have some questions about the talk. Yeah, Anne. Um, this is really intriguing to me because you use the word good and bad, but I, I, I think of a defilement as being calling something bad. So I hear that kind of thinking coming out of uh, the work, but it sounds like I'm misinterpreting that. Because my reaction to, and it's not just the defilements, there's other lectures I've heard where there's sort of a list of vices or whatever. I can't remember. Yeah, I put it in terms of skillful. So a defilement, which, you know, has connotations, but this is how the words get translated. So a hindrance, maybe a better word, so what is hindering clarity? So what is unskillful? There are things that are unskillful. So you could call them evil, you know, like use a more provocative word, terrible, yucky, bad. Or you could, you know, use a more politically correct word like unskillful, unwholesome, uh, something that's not conducive to clarity. But whatever you call it, there are forces or patterns or tendencies of the mind that obscure reality, obscure the way it is. And because of that obscuring, that defiling, distorting, confusing tendency, the mind continues to misperceive. Because the mind is continually misperceiving, it's acting based on misperceptions. And because it's acting based on misperceptions, the results of those actions cause Suffering, confusion, more problems. So suffering is considered to be bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the, in the ultimate sense, suffering is considered to be bad. And the, the whole premise of practicing is, if, if suffering isn't bad, why would we be interested in practicing? So if you're not interested in practicing, if you're not interested in alleviating 
suffering from your life, you don't need to come. Well, I don't know, because I, I, I don't know. Suffering is just part of that movement. Yeah, but if it's not a problem for you, why address it? This practice is for people who feel oppressed by life in some way. If you're not feeling at all oppressed by life, you're either fully awake, according to like the Buddhist terminology, or you're so deluded you don't realize that there is suffering. Not knowing that you're suffering does not mean you're not suffering. We could interview the, all the people on the planet, and a number of people would say they're not suffering, but that doesn't mean they're not suffering. To not be aware of suffering is not the same as not suffering. So we don't know. And so there's... We should have some humility. Like, if we don't think we're suffering, it might be, you know, we might have enough interest to check it out. Like, is the heart feeling oppressed or heavy in some way? Is Are there experiences that are hard to bear? Are there conditions that arise in my life that are hard to bear, hard to be with, hard to be relaxed with, hard to allow? Do I have preferences? Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Jen. Maybe a little bit louder. What strikes me from the last several talks I've heard, I haven't been here consistently over the past couple weeks, but um, is the the idea of allowing. And one thing that really strikes me about that is is there any point in intention? Is there any point in goal setting? Is there any point in there isn't a problem. If you let go of the problem, well, how do you get anywhere? How do you how do you function in society? How do how do bridges get built? How do people mm-hmm. you know? How do you interact with others and interact with yourself in a way? Did you hear about, like, if there are no intentions, how do things happen, like in our life or just generally in the world? But here's the thing. Do we personally have to generate intentions? You know, like, I'll walk home tonight, and there will be a number of intentions that arise in my mind as I walk in the house. You know, the intention to put something away, the intention maybe to eat something, the intention to do this or to do that. So there will be those intentions there. Do I personally have to make those intentions arise in my mind, or do they arise naturally? So here's the thing. Either this, the activity, what we call the activity of the mind, the activity of now, here and now, is nature and is lawfully unfolding as nature does, or there's somebody who has to make it happen. You know, that that great image of Atlas with the world on the shoulders. You know, do we have to make this life happen? Or is this life, in all, in a very real sense, nature? In the same way that nature is able to go from summer to winter, which is this huge thing, by the way. You know, this whole change. It's big. It's a lot of work to kind of do that. Same thing with getting through our life. Waking up on Monday, putting our clothes on, brushing our teeth, feeding the body, going wherever we're going, doing whatever we have to do, giving one more talk, you know, all these things 
So we can either construct a sense of me doing it, me intending it, and then following through with the intention, or we can take refuge that there is the nature, the movement of nature, and there's the empty space of knowing. So this is how we step out of that personal responsibility for making choices. But it doesn't mean choices aren't being made. And you have to experiment. Cultivate this perception of the space of knowing and the activity that's being known. Cultivate that perception or that understanding and see if all of a sudden you stop functioning in the world. Things happen because there are because nature has been set in motion. Yeah. There, the mind is already conditioned to have certain intentions arise when certain things are there. Yeah, is it Rob? Rob, yeah. I'm just remembering and allowing, and I don't know where it fits in this, but it's like, one point I was making a self-hypnosis stage, and I was just, you know, doing the hypnosis my cat. Started getting involved down the air. And said, all of a sudden, I said, well, this is part of the thing. You know, and, and so he was meowing and all that kind of stuff. And, and whenever I played that tape, it was very fun. <laughs> and instead of being an annoyance, yeah. it was the comfort. And so that allowing, there was a point at which I decided to stop resisting my cat's involvement. Just let it involved. Yeah. And that's just a great little story. So just a, a little teaching you can sort of use to get there is... When something comes into your life unexpectedly that initially you think is a problem, you could just remind yourself, sometimes when circumstances are like this, this happens, this arises. You know, sometimes when I'm having this interaction with my partner, he or she does this. Sometimes when I'm driving in traffic, there are a lot of cars. Sometimes when I step outside, it's raining. Sometimes when I wake up, I'm grumpy. Sometimes it's like this. So it's like we're practicing not being surprised. Sometimes when I'm doing a self-hypnosis tape, the cat comes and meows. So it's like an invitation to include, like, well, maybe I shouldn't assume it shouldn't be this way. Maybe this is how it's supposed to be. We have to leave it here, Tim. It's already a few minutes after. Sorry. So just take a few breaths, maybe one or two to end together. Appreciate the teachings and the community. And to whatever degree, feeling inspired to receive, not only receive the gift of these teachings, passed down generation by generation, but also be part of the continuation so we bring them alive in our busy lives as best we can and then live out of the teachings, be part of the causes for peace and happiness in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.